Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 30th of September. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. And coming up on the podcast this week... Mom's I've... pregnant. Mom's yes. pregnant. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. No spoilers. <laughs> and then also, Jess Stanley came in to talk about her show JSMR at Fringe, featured around some braingasms. Uh, and have you ever been separated from loved ones on a plane? I have. Uh, activist Gary Foley spoke to us about the restoration documentary of Ninglana and how old is too old to hop? For Food Interlude, we were joined by food writer Besha Rodell, canvassing her top five underappreciated gems to eat around her local area. And in a Radiothon flashback, we speak with the crud boys, Tony Moclair and Julian Schiller. Triple R. An article came out last week about a 15-year-old girl from the UK. She was actually telling the story of when she was 15. Uh, and she said that she went to bed one night and she had a really sore back, um, more than she'd ever had before, so she had some pain meds. Uh, she woke up the next morning and it was even worse. Uh, she told her parents, she's like, I, I can't go to school, I can't get out of bed. How old? 15. Mm. Yeah, she was 15. Um, so her parents just thought she was trying to get out of school. They're like, get up. She's like, I'm really in pain. They're just like, get up. <laughs> So she gets up and she felt the need to push. She quickly, she ran to the bathroom <sighs> and she goes to the bathroom and then she screamed to her, par- to her parents. She's like, I think I'm having a baby. Oh. And the mama said, get down here now. I'm <laughs> still thinking that she is just trying to get out of school. So she comes down the stairs and the mum lifts up her skirt and sees a baby head. <gasps> and the dad... Runs out the door to go get a pregnancy test. <laughs> For real? No. So he leaves and the mum... The horse has bolted their chair. <laughs> the mum is in disbelief and their auntie was there as well. So their auntie has had a look, seen what was happening and gone, okay, need to call an ambulance. So called an Did ambulance. Just wait for the test results first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she calls an ambulance uh, and the paramedics just said, okay, so you are going to deliver this baby. Uh, it, it's happening. You're going to deliver the, the baby. So uh, she, she did. The mum was still there just in shock, not knowing what to do. So thankfully the auntie was there. And the paramedics came uh, just at the end of, uh, did, yeah, just at the end of the um Birth. birth. <laughs> That's a word. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, she gave, she gave uh, birth to a, a healthy little boy uh, and the dad came running through the door with a pregnancy test after the baby was there. Yeah. Tested her. She wasn't pregnant. He knew it was fake. <laughs> it's, they're still, you'll still have time to make it to maths. Come on. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. So it's crazy. So she... Um, she was telling this story. Uh, it happened a few years ago. But she said leading into it, she, cause she thought she may have been pregnant at the time, um, like initially, and she did pregnancy tests and she was okay and then she got oh. a period and then she had that throughout the last nine months. Um, and she, yeah, she didn't notice that she was bigger at all. It was oh. only just a little bit maybe the last month but not enough to realise. So she went full term. It's not like it was a six-month, like a No, yeah, she went full term. Oh, full my term. God. She showed a photo of her at six and a half months and it was her posing with a selfie and she's got like a, a crop top and a miniskirt on and you would not know that she's six and a half months pregnant. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, crazy. 
So, yeah, she came down. I think I would, I, I would absolutely be well aware. I would hope so. If I was pregnant. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to be wearing a crop top anytime soon because I'm about five and a half months pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So just the idea of, because you hear those stories of people who, oh, and they, you know, you read it in Dolly, like, oh, she didn't know and she went to the toilet and a baby came out. (laughs) Um, And now being, you know, what, 25 weeks, I'm just like, how do you not know? How does it ever happen? I don't believe it. Um, And so... (laughs) Yeah, so the reason I was one of the reasons I was saying it is because it's I'm, I'm showing now, and during Radiothon there was a, there was a, a bit of a bump, and I was very grateful for the um, all the props. Yes, <laughs> always something in front of you. <laughs> um, so like, oh cool, I'll hold this big like transmitter or this oh, yeah, keyboard. <laughs> yeah, I know. I yeah. uh, don't, you know, just not to spoil the, not to take the shine away from Marlon Williams in the photo. I thought, you know, I can't have a big belly, but yes. So um, I've got a little baby coming in January. Which is Which wonderful is, news. So congratulations. I'm well you aware and of it. Thank yes, you. Good to know. <laughs> good to know. Um, yeah, but no, I've been very, I've been very lucky. I've had friends who've had horrific pregnancies who've been super sick or have you know have to take time off work and I haven't. The only time I took off was to go to Italy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all a bit. It's all very grown up. I feel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at least I'm not 15. No, well, that's true. How are the clothes going? What, what are you... Yeah, I've been wearing maternity jeans <laughs> quite early, since quite early on. Yeah. Um, they're great. Recommend the 21 next time you have, like, a big lunch plan. Yeah. I, I remember going shopping for jeans one day and I tried maternity not Did knowing. You? I'm like, these are the best jeans. Out. She's like, yeah, so that's maternity. You, I'm like, oh, okay, no wonder. So loose. Yeah, I think in Italy it, um, it struck me because... They talk about how you pop and all of a sudden, and that kind of happened to me when we were gone. And it was also so much hotter than I'd planned. So I brought along like maternity jeans and stuff, didn't even unfold them the whole time because the weather was so. But I was just like, I'm walking around the Colosseum and like my shorts don't fit. And, like, oh. and Will's like, let's get a photo. I was like, I don't want to get a photo. <laughs> I look disgusting. <laughs> so, um, you stand in front of me, Will. <laughs> no, I know. I'll get a photo of you by self. You pretend it's, uh, it's your, I don't know. But no, it's. Um, but now I've, you know, we're coming into warmer months. I can just wear big, loose, flowy things yes. that are much more comfortable. What but, do you call yeah. them? Moomoos? Yeah, moomoos, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what was the reaction of pregnant mind wandering overseas? Was there any? Yeah, heaps of oh, yeah? staring. It was, <laughs> made me feel awful. I don't know, you know, Ben Elton was just talking politics before and I, he was talking about how it looks like the fascists are back. So I blame the fascism for um, oh, <laughs> staring at me. No, but I just felt like I got looked at a lot and it's a kind of thing where I understand sometimes if you see a woman and immediately you're not sure is she, mm. does she have a gut or is she pregnant. Yeah. Again, it doesn't really affect you either way. But I do know that sometimes your eyes are just drawn to it and I've noticed it. It happened once here at Triple R with someone. <laughs> not either of you because oh, you already knew. I was going to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but it's – and I kind of – but then it's more that they, the commitment – to the stare is what really struck me. Yeah. That, that I'd see, and it was often older people in Italy, like looking at me, looking at my stomach, then staring at me, and then I would look at them in the eye, and then we would just stare at each other. And I was like, one point with one guy, I just put my hands up, like a kind of what? Like, what are you looking yeah, at? Yeah, what are you looking at? But didn't say anything because um, I don't speak Italian. But yeah, so <laughs> I did notice that. And I, then I don't know if I was super aware of it. So then mm. you're thinking everyone's staring, you're paranoid, thinking everyone's staring you, whatever. But, um, but no, but it's it's been nice, and I haven't had any inappropriate touches. You know, people come oh, up and touch yes. your belly. Yes, haven't had that, or people have asked if they can. People I know, not yeah, yeah, <laughs> not just anyone. <laughs> just a random. Can I touch? Yeah. Um, and so I've said, go ahead, touch it. Mm. 
I haven't asked that yet. Have you asked that yet? No. No. That's good. I'm glad there's a big desk between us. And so I'm They'll grateful. put the screens back up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, congratulations. Pregnant at the Coliseum. You're going to yeah, call Maximus Decimus Meridius, <laughs> commander of the army. I should. It, well, it is a boy, so that works. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, we'll name him that. That's good. But Although, no. don't tell your dad he's still waiting on the test. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> uh, but you need, by the time he gets a test, dad's waiting for him to go on sale. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Jess Stanley is an actor, writer, voiceover artist and creator of JSMR, an ASMR-based show at this year's Melbourne Fringe. And to tell us about this intimate event taking place within a tent at Festival Hub at Trades Hall, the J and S in JSMR joins us now. Jess, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thanks Good for morning. having me. It's our pleasure. Now, uh, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, w- were you drawn to it or were you coaxed into it? What's your relationship with ASMR? I discovered ASMR as a child before the term had actually been coined, so mm. I didn't really know what it was. I just thought of it as nice brain tingles. <laughs> and I first noticed it in primary school, actually, when a, a classmate might borrow a, a pencil or an eraser from me, and I got really nice head tingles while they used it. Oh. So that was my intro to it. Like the sound of it on the paper or something? It was that they were borrowing something that belonged to me and that made me feel special. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. So it's a really unique experience for people that experience it. And of course, another common one in young people is when you used to like, you know, plait your friend's hairs mm. in class, things like that, that really nice feeling in the back of your head. Oh. So I've always been aware of it. I used to Google it. What is this funny feeling <laughs> before the term existed? And it's only really been in the last uh 12 years that it's been more of a known thing goodness me uh and so now we're talking sounds and uh amplified sounds i suppose and ordinarily quiet sounds but made you know loud so tell us about this show and how it takes place sure so the idea came to me that i wanted to of course do something a bit unusual because fringe is all about trying new things being a bit uh, left of center and I wanted to take this idea that is usually experienced in a very private setting usually watching YouTube videos of it and make it live and public on stage and have everyone share in this really intimate thing so that was why I wanted to do it and to make it live we still are working with my director Sarah Clark and I who's absolutely amazing how we can still keep it intimate so we came up with this kind of fortune teller tent scenario <laughs> so that it still feels really uh, mystical and magical and a little bit special. And we're going to perform to really small audiences, just 10 to 12 people at a time. Mm-hmm. So we're doing mm. three or four shows a night to allow for more people to come in. And then uh, without spoiling it too much, I'm going to be in a bit of a Uh, scenario in this little space that will hopefully allow me to still deliver ASMR maybe and the audience will have wireless headphones on so that they can still get those really nice sounds right up in their ears. Mm. Are people going to send people crazy? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's going to be really divisive because my experience with ASMR talking to people is that either you love it or you hate it or you have no idea what it is. Mm. (laughs) How many people do you think will come along who have no idea what it is? 
Are you hoping to recruit people to the ASMR movement? Oh, definitely. That's my secret agenda. <laughs> I, I think probably more people than I think still aren't really aware of what it is and what it might be like. So probably a fair few, mm. maybe not 50%. I, I imagine that people would choose to come along to it out of the schedule because they have a bit of an idea. But yeah, yeah. Not really sure. Have you performed more than one show in a night before? Three shows per night sounds like quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I in 2016, I did this great show for Fringe called Menage, which had toured in Edinburgh and the States. And that was uh, verbatim interviews with sex workers. And me and another actress split the show. We did three shows each per night. So it was six shows in total. And it was all um, interactive, immersive, only two audience members per show, which oh, is wow. why we did so many. So that's why I thought I could handle doing three shows a night again. And I really enjoyed that experience of just having a really small group of people to kind of interact with in the show. Mm. What's ear brushing? Ear brushing oh. is exactly what it sounds like. It's like, I don't want to touch the mic, but... Go for it. Uh, yeah. It would be like... Be on your ear. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So that sends Mon nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it gives some people the absolute creep. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And yeah. Wow, okay. And and so say let's say lip smacking or you know saliva noises or whatever. Do people like that or is that one of the divisive ones? I would say that's a really divisive one. So a huge movement in ASMR on YouTube in the last few years has been uh, eating, mm. which to, I personally cannot stand the mm-hmm. sound of people eating, but. Other people love it. And that, to me, I'd say is a really divisive one. Those lip-smacking, slurping, yeah. chewing. Yeah. But it's, like eat, it's still eating quietly, right? It's not like a pee in a trough. Like it's still, <laughs> you know. It's it's, you, it's actually both. If, oh. you, if you look it up, it's, it's quite bizarre. It's usually a lot of um, beautiful, thin women eating a whole feast of food in one sitting. So there's something quite perverse about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's one of the popular ones, would you say, that people actually enjoy feeling or hearing? I think uh, getting a haircut or just similar role play scenarios. Uh, Receptionist is quite popular and that's one that I did in the digital version of the show last year that people seemed to really respond to, like the nice pleasant tapping of a keyboard and having someone uh, really gently like, taking care of you and you know, maybe they're giving your hair a little snip just all that really um positive personal attention i yeah. think is really popular wow. so say individual hairs being sliced you can hear it when it's loud yeah. individuals being sliced by the scissors yeah and that does something for you yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something about uh, I've got this special binaural microphone that literally has ears on the sides of it to recreate um, the sound of hearing it through both ears differently. Mm. And if you get right up to it, it sounds like it's happening right there. I had a few people who watched the show last year that said that they kept turning around in their seat, <sighs> even though they were at home, because they felt like someone was standing, well, me, <laughs> that I was standing right yeah. over their shoulder. So it kind of recreates that really. Someone close. someone texted in and said that their response is to laugh uncontrollably when <laughs> with ASMR triggers. Does that happen a bit? I imagine people get a bit, well, like I did. I made a strange noise yeah. before. Like do people get a bit funny around it. I think so. I think it would probably be like how some people mass uh, when they get a massage, they start laughing something yeah. about like, that. It does feel so intimate that it just makes <laughs> you want to laugh. And I mean, I hope that people do come to the show and laugh. Like, any response is totally valid at this yeah. show. Mm. 
Is it uh, low-grade euphoria? I mean, is that a technical term? Is that is that the term that we're using or is that an accepted phrase within the ASMR community? That is an accepted phrase within the community. So the actual term ASMR was coined in 2010 by a woman called Jennifer Allen and she just wanted to give it a more scientific name because before that it was just being called braingasms mostly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which understandably kind of wanted to steer clear from because it's not really meant to be a sexual thing. But the feelings, the tingles that people can get, they're always positive. It's never, it's not an uncomfortable prickling. It's always just really amazing tingles. There really isn't another way to describe it except for like a braingasm mm. essentially. And what can we take from this in terms of your broader theatrical pursuits? Is is being quiet valuable? You know, do people pay attention and lean in when, you know, when you do, when you're sparing with your noises and, you know, what, what do you learn as a theatre maker watching the reaction of people enjoying ASMR? I think that a lot of it is about people feeling seen and held in this space in a uh, in a way that nothing is obligated from them. They don't have to do anything except receive. So in that way, uh, not that it's providing a service, but I think it's about me being quite vulnerable. And I do share personal stories from my life throughout the show as well about how I came to discover and uh, in some ways use ASMR to help me fall asleep in my 20s when I had quite bad um, insomnia. And so in that ways, it's kind of exploring mental health and anxiety and our little neuroticisms and the ways that having someone just soothe you mm. can be really valuable. <laughs> Will we just nice. soothe them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm doing ASMR on us. <laughs> you love it. Yeah, she's cutting Bobby's hair. <laughs> okay. Now, JSMR, it all takes place at Melbourne Fringe from the 6th to the 21st of October. There are four shows a night. There's four shows on the first three nights and then it reverts to three because then I start my other show at Fringe, Shut oh, Up, I'm right. a Vampire. So I will still be doing four shows a night, just not of ASMR. <laughs> Very busy. busy okay. Busy. Well, for more information, head to melbournefringe.com.au. The event, as we say, is JSMR and we've been speaking with artist and creator Jess Stanley. Thanks very much. Thank you. Melbourne's own. You know when you book uh, tickets on a plane and you might be travelling with your partner or a family or a group and then you are sitting separate from your partner? Has that happened to all all the person that you're travelling with? Has that ever happened to you? I think maybe on a short flight. Yeah? Maybe. Yeah, short flight. Yeah, and I mean it's happened to me a couple of times. For short flight, like, oh well, Mm. it's, it's an hour. Or, or whatever. I think for a three-hour flight, maybe we had changed. So this has happened to me a couple of times. I, I guess it's budget airlines. Mm. They might do it more. Um, I've had uh, people ask if we can move to – or if I can move, sorry, to accommodate family or whatever sitting together. And I'll do it most of the time. Most of the time you get rid of a middle seat by doing it, so you get an aisle or a, a window, which is good. Um, and we've done that before. So uh, I think we booked tickets and we had someone sitting in the middle of Abby and I. Um, so Abby just gave the aisle seat so that she sat in the middle. Otherwise it was just going to be a little bit weird or awkward. Oh, they were, she would have been sandwiched between. <coughs> yeah, yeah, the person was sandwiched in between. So he said, would you like an aisle seat? <laughs> Hold hands in her lap. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Um, 
Yeah, I don't mind. If I'm travelling by myself and someone wants to sit with someone, then unless it's a long haul and I've specifically chosen like an aisle seat, what what seat do you choose? Window, aisle? No one chooses them, I used obviously. To, I used to like a window because I very rarely needed to get up during a flight, yeah. so I don't want people crawling over me. But now being pregnant... Oh yes, especially on a long haul flight, um, they wow. like get up and move around a lot, and also you just need to go. You just need to pee all the time. Yeah, right. Um, but on the we thought we'd booked aisle seats, and then on the way over, I had the middle, and there was this little old lady next to me, and she was lovely, um, and thankfully about four foot five, so <laughs> perfect to sit next to. But from Melbourne to Dubai, so it's like fourteen hours. Did not get up. Only got up when I had to tap her and say, I just need to oh, go really? for a walk. I need to go to the, the loo. Yeah, right. Did not get up at all. And we'd worded her up before. Will was very considerate and was like, yes. just say, no, my wife is pregnant. She'll need to get up and move around. I'm so sorry for the – and she was like, that's fine. It's all good. Yeah. Um, but, of course, then she – there's one point when she fell asleep like stone cold. And I was like, I think I think she's dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could take a seat. Don't say and anything. And I was like, I'm over. just going to roll over here, <laughs> lift up the armrest. But, yeah, and then, of course, then you're waking this person up and saying sorry. And I know. Did, did, did you roll over or not? No, it's oh. too hard because then you've got your headphones connected so there's the cord uh, and they have to take so out. So they wake head. up and you're straddling them and you go, <laughs> shh, 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 shh. Don't, don't make a sound. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm not allowed back on Emirates anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so now I, th- I think Isle is, is great. You think that yeah. she should have said, well, for a start, no, she was I, sitting in between you two. No, she was sitting on the aisle. I was in the middle, mm. Will was at the window. Yeah, if you're going to sit on the aisle, you need to be getting up mm. as in, in two hour windows to give them yeah. an opportunity. That's what I do. Yeah. Do you? That is yeah. good. I think Isle is, is primo. Yeah. Yeah. I had an aisle on the other, all the other legs and it was so good. Yeah, I think for a long haul, I, I definitely prefer an aisle. If it's under five hours, window's good for me. Yeah. Then you just know what else is good? Space. If you both, if you are travelling together, you can both pick aisle and sit across the aisle from each other. Oh, yeah. That's a good little hack. Oh, yeah. What about um, when someone needs to get up? What I like to do is go, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go, just a minute, just a minute, just this scene. I just want to finish. <laughs> Struggle with my seatbelt. Finish this episode of Modern Family. (laughs) I was travelling on a plane from uh, Perth to Melbourne uh, many years ago. I was working for Cricket Australia at the time. So on the plane, there was the Australian men's cricket team and the South African men's cricket team. And I was with the crew from Cricket Australia. And I, for some reason, sat right in the middle of the South African men's cricket team. I was the only person. So they were all sitting in economy. I was next to the two fastest bowlers. They had the longest legs I've ever seen. Cool. It was like they were kneeing themselves in the head. It was so bizarre. And I did, when I sat there, they kind of laughed like, what are you doing here? I'm like, and I just kept checking my ticket and I was looking around and looking around. And they're like, are you okay to sit here? I'm like, I'm okay, are you guys okay? They're like, yeah. Anyway, I sat down and everyone's just laughing. Like, what is Bobby doing sitting up there? I asked her like, I was like, oh, is the, is, she's like, I don't think we actually have any more room. So unless someone wants to swap with you. And I was just like, okay. Um, anyway, the Australian men's cricket team were on the, the flight as well, but they were sitting in first class. Mm. Now, young. First? First class. Wow. Yeah. Um, and South Africa were in economy with the rest of us. Now, there were young cricket fans on this plane and they were thrilled. So they were going up to all the Aussie players and going, oh, can I get a photo? Can I get an autograph? And we could all see the Australian team 
and they snubbed them. Really? Snubbed all these little kids and was just well, like... What are the little kids doing in first class? Walking through. Just, just coming from the entrance. For a visit. And, yeah. yeah all even, those little plebs. Yeah. <laughs> they need me there policing them on one of my two Get hours. Get <laughs> I'm just on a walk and I notice that you're not in your elevated <laughs> class. <laughs> Oh, I, I, well, when you first said that, I was like, oh, on the flight? Like, get lost. That's annoying. But also, mm. if you're a famous cricketer and kick up, like, just isn't it easier to just sign their ball or whatever and then? Yeah, or maybe that's always going to continue. Yeah, so. Um, was and it Daniel with his cricket ball? <laughs> it was. No. Um, and South Africa had just smashed Australia as well. Oh, so they right. lost. They're on the plane. They've got these people asking for autographs. They didn't want to borrow it. And then the kids are walking past and they're like, can you sign? And the South African team, all of them posed for photos, gave autographs, did absolutely everything. Everyone loved it. And then as the um, the news was flashing highlights of the cricket match <gasps> and then it had South Africa beat Australia and the entire plane erupted <laughs> with cheers. Great. I think first class <clears throat> closed the curtains after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so do, you were watching, how many times do you reckon you saw someone venture in past the curtain and then get dispatched? I, you know, I honestly think at... at First, it was just people walking through, and then when people did start to, they did close the curtains. Yeah. So, who would you go to? I mean, you wouldn't even. Would you see like I don't know, like Dave Warner or whatever, and go, won't even bother. Yeah. Oh, like which player would you go for? Yeah. Yeah, I'm the wrong person to ask. Yeah. Warney, probably. But be very. He was there as a commentator. He was actually sitting up there. <gasps> yeah. He right. would have given. Surely he would have given an autograph. Don't None tarnish his w- name. <laughs> None of them did. I'm not just saying him. Okay. None of them did. Mm. Commentators at all. Uh, and the, this old woman, did, what, did she wake up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, no. I, no. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Professor Gary Foley is an academic, historian, writer, actor and renowned activist who, among a lifetime of achievements, helped establish in 1972 the Aboriginal Embassy in Canberra, the inside story of which is told in the documentary Ningla Ana, newly restored and set to screen at Cinema Nova this weekend and to tell us about what he calls the single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years, the teacher and coordinator of Aboriginal history and political movements at Victoria University joins us now. Gary Foley, welcome back to Triple R. Good morning. Now, take us back to 1970, 1972. Uh, what was going on? Where were you? Um, I was caught up in the heat of the, the Black Power movement in Redfern, in Sydney. Redfern was the biggest Aboriginal community in Australia with about 35,000 people, all of whom were impoverished, landless refugees. And from that... Um, interesting crucible emerged a political movement that changed the course of Australian history with the 1972 Aboriginal Embassy and um, into that volatile mix one day walked these two young Italian filmmakers uh, who seemed to be the only non-Aboriginal people who were game to enter Redfin at that time and and talk to the supposedly dangerous leaders of the Black Power Movement. They simply walked in and explained to us that they would like to make a film in our midst and asked our permission to do it. And for the simple reason they asked, they were respectful. We said yes, and uh, as a result was Ninglana. And I've got to say, this new digitally remastered version 
it's absolutely magic what they can do these days technically because it is a better quality uh, version than the original 16mm print that I saw 50 years ago. Mm. And you scrub up all right? <laughs> well, not necessarily, you know. You, it, as I say to my students, it's, sometimes it's a bit cringe-inducing when I look at my uh, younger self, 50 years younger, when I was wild, long-haired, foul-mouthed and <laughs> radical. Um, and, you know, there's, when I introduce the film at the Nova on Friday night, I'll feel the need to at least explain the context of one of the scenes in that film. Well, can you give us some context of that time and the what was being set out to achieve and, and maybe well, some of the objectives that remain to, yet well, to be achieved? These, these were exciting times, you know. There was a lot of... Uh, dramatic things going on locally and globally. There was a major issue globally it had to do with race and history and that had to do with the, the South African apartheid system at the time. There was um, major protests in Australia against the Vietnam War. The women's movement was starting to gain strength in Sydney at the time. There was the emergence in the early um, um, gay movement uh, happening. Um, and there was this huge anti-apartheid um, demonstrations throughout 1971 when the Springboks toured Australia, and the Black Power movement was very much caught up in a multitude of um, uh, both local and international issues. And, uh, you know, what we were particularly interested in in Redfin was some of the more interesting things that were happening in the American civil rights movement at the time, especially the more radical branch, the uh, Black Panther Party, for example, and and the first Aboriginal legal services in Australia uh, came about as a result of police intimidation, police harassment of Aboriginal young people in Redfern. And the first Aboriginal legal service was, in fact, uh, uh, based on an idea that we'd stolen and adopted and adapted from the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. So, you know, these were interesting times. Mm. The police make an appearance in this footage. What, what are your impressions of looking back at and, and what are your memories of the interplay between you all? Well, a couple of things. I mean, the first and foremost thing, whenever I look at the film... I see yet another of my old uh, compatriots is no longer with us, you know. The, the really sad thing for me when I look at the film is that probably 90% of those very... We were all very young at the time, but uh, almost 90% of uh, everybody, every Aboriginal person who's in that film is dead, which, you know, is... Another illustration of the discrepancy in life expectancy between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people. Um, I suppose... Uh, I'll leave it at that. OK. Mm. I've forgotten the other <coughs> no, points I, I was going to make. How, how far do you think we've progressed since, since then? Do you look back at it and, and see a lot that you still recognise today? Well, I look around today and the incarceration rate 
of uh, Aboriginal people, which is one of the highest in the world, um, remains pretty much the same. The issue of deaths in custody and police brutality, pretty much the same as what they were 50 years ago. The health statistics um, generally are pretty much in the region of what they were 50 years ago. The political um, situation of Aboriginal people in Australia is probably worse today than it was 50 years ago because we've just suffered uh, more than 40 years of uh, uh, Pauline Hanson One Nation, uh, the history and culture wars, um, sky after dark and the Murdoch tabloids. So, you know, Australia's uh, a different sort of place than what it was in 1967 when 90% of the Australian people voted in support of Aboriginal rights. The advocates of this new referendum are deluding themselves if they think they can get sufficient uh, vote today to get a referendum passed, you know, so they're pissing into the wind to mm. a large extent from my point of view as a historian. <laughs> Looking back as an historian at this sort of time capsule, what 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 was ASIO up to at the time? Uh, you would have been on their radar. Oh, they were. <laughs> they were... Very interested in us, and uh, I didn't realise just how much they were interested in us until 30 years later when I got access to my ASIO file because all Australian government records go to the National Archives after 30 years, including ASIO files. And so uh, each year, 1st of January, I get a new instalment from uh, 30 years ago. Uh, and I was actually quite surprised. They kept a detailed record on uh, where we were, the meetings we were attending, the people who were at those meetings, uh, what everybody said. So, you know, as record keepers, they've proven invaluable to me as a historian because whenever I can't remember where I was at any given moment 50 years ago, I just go and consult my ASIO. <laughs> uh, and now what about the... Uh, you're at the ground floor, I suppose, of where's where people's knowledge and how their education is when you have high school students graduating and coming up through the education system. Is it is it improving? Have you have you have you clocked a progressive, you know, interest over the years? Um, well, I've I've educated. Uh a few generations of up-and-coming Australian history teachers at Mel first at Melbourne Uni and now at uh, Victoria University. And some of those students that Tony Birch and I taught 20, 20 25 years ago are now um, head of the history departments in some of their high schools. And, and they uh, let us know that they're teaching the sort of stuff that we taught them needed to be taught and so it's it, but it's going to be a slow process because the first year students that I get at Victoria University fresh out of high school know absolutely zero about their own history anything about Australian history what little was taught what little continues to be taught in Australian high schools is um, superficial and uh, you know meaningless at best you know so there's a long way to go. Mm. Well, now, this, I imagine a document like this will be pretty 
effective in classrooms and for historians as well. It's the, the images are so striking and it just takes you there. Well, I mean, I use uh, various clips from uh, Ning La Na and my teaching and uh, among those clips, uh, when the police smashed us on the 30th, uh, on the 30th of July in 1972, um, there were large numbers of men. It's all graphically recorded in Ning La Na. But I say to my students, look at these police as they move in to, to hit us. Um, they're not dressed as though they're ready to go to war in Afghanistan or something. They're not carrying all the, the, the paraphernalia that police seem to think is so necessary these days. They aren't, the police weren't militarised back, back then. And that's a significant difference between the Australia of 1972 and the Australia of today. And, and I say to my students, is it really necessary that uh, police who are, uh, go on to a demonstration should be dressed like they're going to war, you know? So that there's little tidbits like that that are in the footage that help illustrate to my students the differences that have occurred over the past 50 years. Well, if you want to see a wild-haired potty mouth Gary Foley from 50 <laughs> years ago, head to the screening of Ningla Na at Cinema Nova, Carlton, Friday 30th of September through to Sunday the 2nd of October. It sounds like you'll be speaking at one of them. And I should uh, let people know there's also a panel going to discuss the film afterwards featuring Tony Birch, myself and Senator Lydia Thorpe, who uh, I want to say this morning... I've. I'm a really strong supporter of what she's doing. She's representing her constituency and that, that is Aboriginal people of Victoria brilliantly. Check it all out. Ningla Na at cinemanova.com.au. Professor Gary Foley, thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. On my walk yesterday, I noticed that there was some chalk on the footpath as I was coming up. Uh, and as I got closer, I noticed that it was hopscotch. So individual squares, double squares, all that kind of stuff. I haven't done that in a very long time, but when I see it in front of me, I mean, you've got to do it, right? Do you really? Oh, okay. I mean, Whoa, well, that's... Good I'm, for you. Oh, well, no, apparently not. <laughs> Where are I, you alone? I was with Winnie. I, I was just walking the dog, so she had to yeah, be with me. But yeah, yes, no, I was I alone. And were the people around? Uh no, it is. I mean, that footpath is right near <laughs> houses. So mm. People might have seen. Um, okay, no, carry on. <laughs> so it should be like do impromptu hopscotch like no one's watching. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I did it. Okay. Um, when, I'm not sure when the last time you did hopscotch or when was the last time that you hopped? Have you hopped recently? Have I hopped? Uh, most likely. You have? Yeah. Yeah. Probably, I think for excess, sometimes you do one. Oh, okay, like yeah, yeah. But of I course. think when um, Will broke his ankle, mm, you were was, mocking him. Yeah, and I pushed him <laughs> over, and I, I adapted him. No, I. Um, <laughs> he was hopping around. Sometimes, like it'd be easier if he's moving a short distance from like the couch to somewhere. Mm. He would just hop rather than get his crutches, and I was like. I think I just was like, I want to see how hard hopping is because you never do it, and I was like, that's actually quite hard. Yes, on your glutes. On everything. I yeah. think for me it was my knees. Like, and because I've never been great at jumping, I just don't get very much height. I kind of <laughs> bend my knees and straighten them and I feel like I've jumped. Mm. Oh, so, yeah, um, I <laughs> Like, do you ever do jumping photos? Then you look at it and you're like, oh, my God, I'm barely off the ground. 
Yeah, all yeah, all the time. Like my arms are so high, and everyone's just—it's like I'm preparing to jump, and mm. everyone else is in the air. Mm. It's like Bobby, what were you doing? I was like, this, this is me attempting to jump. So because your knees bent and then extended, your eyeballs think there's you've covered quite a distance. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, I did that. I was like, no, you haven't. You haven't left the ground. <laughs> so I would have looked like an idiot, and I thought it was fun for the first two, but there were like three hops, then a double, and then two hops. So I did three hops, a double, half a hop, and then I stopped and then I just kept walking. And I looked around and there weren't anyone, there wasn't anyone so else So hop, 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 double, hop. half a hop what's I did. Half, what's half a hop? It's like I straightening my leg. I didn't actually hop. So I tried, but my knee was buggered by that I stage. thought, sorry, pardon my ignorance, but I thought hopscotch was uniform. I thought Me too. There was oh, essentially in retrospect basically the, a crucifix. Yeah, always the same, like hop, hop, double, jump, double, hop, hop. Oh. No. Well, no, I, th- I thought what you just described was yeah. bog standard hopscotch. Yeah. I mean, that's what I thought it was yeah. as well. And, and but it also sounds easy. <laughs> it does. Mm-hmm. It really does. Yeah. Like what, and what's so hard about it? Like what, what is the cha- is the challenge getting the pebble to land in the... Oh, there are pebbles involved. I, uh, oh. Uh, look, or I marbles? thought maybe you threw a, pe- a stone and like you hopped to, to where, where the stone was. landed. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, mm. I didn't throw any pebbles. I just went the whole hog. Yeah. Well, I tried. Yeah. And but, then you stopped. Well, I, I stopped because <laughs> I don't think that I could have continued on the walk. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, it, it made me realise how I just haven't, I, I mean, I walk every day, but I don't really push myself and I just can't hop or jump. And who would have thought it would matter? <laughs> I know. <laughs> mm. Until, of course, I come past. Uh, I tried to hop pretty recently. And you did? It, it was not as comfortable as I wanted it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I was hopping from one foot to the other. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's, that's like, uh, yeah. I, we did that as a footy warm up when you, like, you lunge from one side to the other. Is that yeah, what you were doing? Yeah. Or? And I was like, you know, I'm not sure if that's technically a hop. It felt <laughs> hop adjacent. Oh, but you, yeah. Yeah. Because okay. I was it's... lingering on one foot I guess... before launching onto the other foot. Yeah, I think a hop you have to go on the one foot, don't you, for it to straight. be a, Yeah, I thought All you right. had to go straight on one foot. I thought I was alternating feet and therefore I, I was doing a dual hop. I think that's just running. <laughs> okay. <laughs> From one leg to the other. That's <laughs> just, just moving. Uh, moving moving oh, forward. Just moving forward. Daniel's I like, think I was walking. <laughs> Daniel. Daniel gets up out of the studio and just jumps on two feet all the way to his car. <laughs> I've been mad hopping. Terrified. <laughs> what um, walking? You got something else? No. <laughs> I love the image. Um, another thing, I mean, I wouldn't even try this one, but it wouldn't be on a footpath, but would be monkey bars. I mean, there's no way in hell I would oh. ever. Do monkey bars. All these things that are deceptively easy because right? kids do them. Mm. And then you realise when you're a kid, I don't know what it is, you just, you're just stronger and fitter and more fearless. Mm. I oh, see. It's so upsetting <laughs> when you're doing a, a chin-up. Oh. Chi- oh, God, I don't think Well, I've I mean, that's what people to... do when they see a monkey bar, isn't it? They'll go, they I'll, always, yeah. I'll regress and do a chin-up. It'll be a cinch. It's yes. not possible. Mm. I was, I'm so surprised how hard it is to do. Yeah. Like... I'm, you know, I'm not a particularly strong person, but I'm also not like devoid of any strength. But yep. doing any kind of yeah, lifting up, I just am like, oh my god, this looks so easy. Mm. What am I? Anyway, so yeah. Uh, yeah, my uncle and cousins had in their kitchen a chin up bar. Oh, mm. really? I think that's a pretty good place for it. Oh, so it's it would just be under the door frame. Yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty good. So you like, you know, you do a 
chin up while you're waiting for your yeah. scrambled <laughs> eggs to cook or whatever. Yeah. But, but yeah, when you walk up to monkey bars and then think that you can manage it, that's a very confronting situation. Yeah. Mm. I think it's, I mean, I never get my eyes above the thing. I kind of bend my elbows and then I release and remember that I can't do it. But I'm just oh. talking, I'm talking a very long time ago. I wouldn't even attempt anything with oh, hanging. I thought this might have all happened on the same walk. No. Like you saw I the didn't... hopscotch and then the monkey bars. Oh, I'll give I... it a go. Yeah. I was like, no. I slept the sand aw- pit and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I slept awkwardly the other night and I'm going to the physio tomorrow because I've got a sore shoulder. <laughs> Your, I'm not climbing any monkey bars. I'm weak, but I'm not devoid of strength. That's why I'm going to have to put, use that. That's a perfect Tinder profile. <laughs> Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. With Michael Hardenway on Important Eating Business, we're joined for Food Interlude this week by Chief Restaurant Critic for The Age and Good Weekend Magazine and Editor-in-Chief of A Plus Insights, Special Rodell. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks. Uh, we're talking a specific genre of establishment this morning. Yes. Well, yes. Um, I think that I grew up in Melbourne and then left um, for 20 years and came back. And so a lot of my love of Melbourne food is very nostalgia-based. And so my job is to go and look at you know, usually trendy new restaurants or restaurants with a certain reputation. But honestly, I like to eat at like weird daggy neighborhood <laughs> restaurants because yeah. they remind me of my childhood in Melbourne. And I feel like those places just don't get enough love for the most no. part. No. And sometimes that's the way we like it. It is. And uh, yeah, I'm a little anxious about writing about some places, but I also want them to survive. I mean, these days, the chances of something getting overrun compared to it closing because nobody yeah. goes there is it's probably better that it gets It's always, always heartbreaking when a an underpopulated favourite, you turn up and you see the mail accumulating on the inside mm. of the door. It and happens so much yeah. more these days too. It's just the last couple of years have been so tough. So, yeah, I want everyone to support all the restaurants. Yeah, so <laughs> underappreciated gems. Yeah. I mean, yes, underappreciated gems, places that I love for strange reasons, but I think people <laughs> will understand. Um, these are mainly inner north places because that's where I live. And so these are the places that I would eat on my night off eating for work. Mm. Um, there's one genre of restaurant that I really, really love. And I think Melbourne does particularly well, which is the kind of old school um, French, middle of the road French bistro, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of my favorites, um, which is on Rathdown Street in Carlton, um, is Paris Go, which is, um, you know, it's exactly like the mediocre French bistros that you go to in Paris, like down to the kind of snotty French waiters, mm. like they're all French kids that are working there. Um, and But the food is actually better than it needs to be for the place. Terrible you know? logo. For yeah. years oh, I thought it was a golf store. I know. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I, it's around the corner from my house and I it took me years to figure out what it was too. But once you get that, you know, the menus are laminated and it's just like everything about it. I was like, I feel actually transported to Paris in a way that is more – um, maybe authentic than something that's trying to be more high end or more chic, you know? Mm. I mean, a lot of the food in Paris is at these kind of middle of the road, um, decent 
you know, bistros mm. and it's got the white tablecloth. You can get a good glass of Sancerre. You can, you know, but then the cooking is actually really good. And yeah. um, so I love that. And then close by is Mon Ami, which is on Nicholson Street, um, has been there forever, is one guy. And I think his wife running the place, the kitchen is like the size of a shoebox. They mainly make duck. Like that's like <laughs> what they cook. <laughs> and I think that it's the type of place that like, people have been going for date night, you know, on the Thursday night for 30 years or yeah. something. Like you can tell they have a really, really- Guilty. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a, a very uh, loyal clientele. Um, but I fear that, you know, it's dropping up, like younger people aren't coming in there. And I just think that it's such a kind of classic Melbourne um, French place. And I think that those places probably exist in a lot of neighborhoods in Melbourne, the kind of, you know, place that was maybe in the 80s like or 90s like mm. really kind of a fancy place and mm. and but they just have never changed and I kind of love that. What's your go-to French dish in a in a place like these? Uh, I mean I'm just a sucker for you know moule frites if they mm. have that um, I mean I will eat chicken liver pate any day of the week <laughs> yeah, for any meal for past. breakfast you know <laughs> um so yeah and and at mon Ami, you know their specialty is duck and they do it in a number of ways and so they're you know you go for the duck all orange mm. or whatever yeah two french places in the top five well yes again i want to qualify top five by these oh, are the top course. five places that i love that represent a certain but there's kind something of thing. about i think i think french restaurants are kind of off out of fashion in a way. I think yeah. they were, they, it seemed like they were, yeah, the, the place, the fancy place in the 90s with places like Francois. Mm -hmm. And now people have moved into different cuisines. And, I think yeah. so. And I think even in France, you know, a lot of the really great restaurants there are closer to what we would think of as kind of, you know, modern Australian or modern American or whatever. Mm. It's like, you know, the the kind of clown bars, places like that in Paris that get a lot of attention. I mean, they're very French, but they are much more modern. And so mm. I think it's that style of kind of cooking that... Um, that I just love, like give me a cream sauce, you know, with <laughs> some wine in it, and I'm happy. So, and of course, being a writer, I'd imagine you you wouldn't mind the anonymity and being at a table and being left alone sometimes. Yeah, totally. Well, honestly, I try for anonymity and being left alone all the time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any photos out there and stuff for that reason, and it's really for that reason. I mean, it helps with work too, but um, I, yeah, I just want to eat dinner like anybody else yeah. so yes but it's kind of nice when it's a place where they literally don't care about you too <laughs> um and the other thing i think that is really hard to find in melbourne is um a uh, kind of tuesday night sushi restaurant i feel like the sushi in melbourne goes very quickly from like a you know a role that you get to go or and then you a, like very high end mm. and um i really just want to eat sushi that is really good but not super expensive um and on smith street um is a place called konyubi izakaya um and they are the only place that i've found that i would qualify as a tuesday night sushi restaurant um their sushi is actually really high quality um but it's not super expensive and they have this deluxe sushi sashimi platter that i think is like 79 dollars that will feed two people pretty easily mm. and it's like a bunch of sushi a bunch of sashimi and a couple of rolls and um yeah my husband and i go and get a bottle of sake with that and that's like a great meal yeah. that is not too expensive and i just i mean I think sushi here is just hard for some reason and and, and it, it's so much fast food or it's 
you know, just you, you're going to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So this is a really nice kind of, you know, middle of the road place that I just think is pretty underappreciated. What was the name again? It's called Kinubi Izakaya. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on Smith Street, uh, right down near Gertrude. Mm-hmm. What's a takeaway sushi uh, problem that you would, we encounter that, I don't know. There's it's... too much mayonnaise in the sushi yeah. in this country. <laughs> <laughs> There's too much mayonnaise in this country. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> Oh, the French love mayonnaise. What are you, you know? Uh, yeah, sure. I don't think they eat it on their sushi. <laughs> I, I don't know. We, we're not the only ones, but we certainly love to slather. I mean, I'm always standing at the counter being like, which one doesn't have mayonnaise? And they're like, all of them have mayonnaise. <laughs> it's always the problem. So we've gone to Carlton, to Collingwood, to Fitzroy, and yeah, where next? and probably back to Carlton because I have to talk about the the old school Italian restaurants and... Um, <laughs> I actually came up with this idea because I was, I've taken a couple of weeks off of reviewing, so I am eating out on, on my own diamond with what I would want rather than what I have to eat. Um, and I went to this other restaurant also on Rathdown Street that just opened recently called Bossy Beans, um, and <laughs> which is a very odd place. Um, it, it, it has like a logo with a coffee stain and it's called Bossy Beans. And so you would assume it's a cafe. It is not a cafe. It's like an old, old school Carlton Italian restaurant, like the kind that has like a few bottles of weird Amaro in the, mm-hmm. you know, and like two kinds of wine by the glass. And then, you know, every kind of pasta, they have pizza. I don't know what the pizza is like. I haven't tried it. But then they also have like oysters Kilpatrick, like that they're making, you know, to order that are really good. And um, they they don't necessarily want you there. They're kind of a little bit kind of confused when you walk in the door. And but they have like, you know, that kind of lemon chicken that's just like so much lemon and a little cream and like really good chicken. And like the lasagna was really good. And I just have such an affection for that kind of Italian restaurant. But it's new. It is new. And I don't know what's going on. It's in the place that used to be called Carlton Pizza and which went out of business, which is amazing to me because if you have the name Carlton Pizza, you would think <laughs> like you would do really well. But um, yeah, it's it's a strange place, but I just, I, I feel like, you know, so those are some of my favorite restaurants in Melbourne. I love the Waiters Club. I love places that are, you know, that the, the Matriciana kind of thing that, that actually doesn't exist in the US or in Italy. Like we have our own brand of Australian Italian food that I feel like we're really ashamed of for some unknown mm. reason because it's awesome. Like, eat the Matriciana, it's delicious. Who would argue with that? You know. Um, can I potentially expose extreme ignorance here? What would bossiness and beans perhaps have to do? With- I don't know. Okay. I think it, <laughs> the service. It is, no, I think it is. The branding is one of a cafe, and they do have an espresso machine. Okay. So I do think that you can go in there and get a coffee, but oysters I don't. Too, if you uh, want. Yes, and oysters <laughs> Kilpatrick, if you want. Or um, a combo. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just like a some you know intellectual property that they already had, and yeah. so they you know I don't. I'm not sure, but mm. or maybe they thought they were going to have a cafe and then. The founder chef who was good. Uh, it's one of those places that feels pretty thrown together in a lot of ways, but um, I was just really impressed with like the cooking. It, it's like good cooking, Beautiful. you know? Yeah. Oh so. my gosh. Where are we up to? Is that four? That's four. Yeah. <gasps> okay. So the fifth is the closest to kind of like a trendy 
cool restaurant. Um, and that is Legato, which is also on Nicholson Street. Um, it is uh, opened a couple years ago, and it just kind of slipped under the radar. It's actually owned by the same people who own Congress Wine Bar um, in Collingwood, which just closed because um, one of the owners sadly passed away earlier this year from cancer. And but they still have Legato and it's a cafe in the daytime and a restaurant at night. And it has really, really good, you know, European, I mean, it's, it's got the Kingfish Crudo and the, and the spaghettini and the, you know, all of the stuff, but like nobody's just ever noticed it or something. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's really, really underrated and it's a really great kind of like, again, you know, Thursday date night type mm. of spot. It's really laid back. They actually won some awards when they opened for design because the branding is really, really clever, very kind of pop art, Italian, um, mm. fun, you know, and a lot of it is around the, the Legato is a breed of dog that it's named after. Um, they've had some staffing issues <laughs> in recent months, as everybody has, and I've had some trouble going there when they're supposed to be open and having them not be open. But I think that they're staying in business and hopefully they will stay in business because I just think there's such a kind of different thing for that neighborhood. Again, not, not super, you know, cheap. It's not like cheap eats, but it's also not like very high end, Mm. you know, it's a, it's a really nice middle of the road, high, high quality restaurant that I think, you know, for some reason when it opened, just, it didn't get the reviews. It, I think it might've been COVID like it happened, you know, um, that, that it slipped under that, but I'm, I'm hoping that they stick around. And fully staffed, could you be there in the late afternoon and while they transition and not, they won't kick you out? I think so. Uh, On the weekend, their hours are a little odd. I think that they're open in the daytime on the weekend and they used to be open every morning, but they're not anymore. So now I think it's like a Wednesday through Sunday thing yeah. or something. But yes, it is a place that you could sit on the sidewalk and drink wine in the afternoon on the weekends and yeah, and then have dinner, you know. The yeah. name of that restaurant again? La Gato. Underappreciated gems. I'm sure you've inspired everybody to think of their own as well. Mm. Uh, Besh Rodell, thank you very much. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. The brainchild of comedy partners Tony O'Clair and Julian Chiller, Crud, first appeared on Triple R in the autumn of 1994 as a five-minute segment each Friday morning at the end of Station to Station with the incomparable Karen Lang before being added to the grid proper for two hours on Saturday Arvos in 1996. From there, the pair were inevitably poached, co-created platinum-selling comedy albums, won two arias and forged flourishing TV and radio careers with Jules now helming Drive on ABC Adelaide and Tony hosting Australia Overnights on Nine Radio and Reunited for Radiothon 2022, the steam sellouts. Join us on the Triple R airwaves. <laughs> Tony and Jules, welcome back to Breakfasts. Yeah. Thank you. Yay. Hey, Jules. Bags of cash, bags of cash everywhere. <laughs> Do you, if you, I don't know if you remember, Jules, we had Tism on uh, uh, when we were at Triple M. We were doing overnights. Mm. And. Um, they, boy, they really got stuck into us about selling out and leaving Triple R. <laughs> that was live to air, and I cannot repeat the phrases they used. I literally cannot repeat. Did you remember the horrible words they called us for stabbing Triple R in the back? <laughs> what did they call us, Tony? Uh, no, there was, no, I'm, I'm not going to go into it. But look, it was it was a tough decision to leave, but yeah. when you're being paid money, um, it's what you do. But my God, what a great place to learn the basics of radio. That's right. How much effort went into what you did on Triple R? 
Well, we, we started doing radio serials, which was really odd. I mean, this was 1993, I think, when we, we first started doing it. So we, we were actually coming into Triple R, and I remember being in there from midnight till about 3 a.m., cutting up radio serials on tape. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we would spend four, five, six hours a week just cutting up a three or four minute um, radio serial called Bill the Social Worker. And but I have to say, like the the effort that we put in, and it was all unpaid at the time, has just paid off in spades, hasn't it, Tony? Like yeah. down the track. Yeah, we would cut, we would write them out at Mum's um, place in Burwood in a a shack in the back made out of asbestos. <laughs> Seriously, and on an old uh, computer that we had inherited, and um, then we would jump on the tram because neither of us drove. <laughs> it's ladies. Uh, it's, <laughs> we were quite the catch, and we would we would come into Fitzroy, and um, and we were lucky to have about half a dozen performers who would give up their time every Sunday. And we would record them and then they would go and then uh, Jules and I would mix them mm. down onto um, $5 reels. Now, remember they were $5, Jules, because we had to pay for them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, the taxpayer did because we were both on the dole. <laughs> it was, it was, it's quite interesting, fun to listen to. I was listening to an episode from uh, September 12, 1994 and I, just some silly jokes. I yeah. think there was, you're in a detective station and... One detective asks the other, who's in the frame? And he says, it's my wife, 82, but that's not important. And all that sort of stuff. Yes. That, what, uh, uh, there was also, I think we were possibly had the honour, Jules, of between three years in our time at Triple R of being the most pun-heavy comedy show. <laughs> yes, which is why we're on AM Talk Radio, Tony. That's right. But, but the thing about Triple R is, and this is what I love, so much about it is that it, it's the most creative radio that that I think we ever did, and it, and Tony and I have always done really creative radio. And we we I don't know if anyone remembers, but in was it early two thousands we did a um um we did a show on Triple J called Restoring the Balance, um, where Tony was a, a a young liberal called Sterling Addison, and I was a young national called Tom Tomlinson, and and we actually told the audience that that the government had 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 made Triple J had a show for conservative youth and we and no one told the audience and we did some yeah. outrageous stuff Tony yeah. remember remember we did talk back and we said it was only for privately educated <laughs> listeners so only only listeners from private schools could call in and and that's the sort of stuff that we learned from Triple R that you yeah. could create characters you could do crazy things and you could just have a lot of fun mm. well yeah that was our, so our first kind of boss if you like was Stephen Walker mm. and um, it was uh, benign neglect, and uh, but in, in a in a great way, um, and so we learnt on the job, and uh, we had we were given a hell of, a hell of a lot of rope. We were we tried at one stage to spark uh, an incident with Malaysia. We made a joke about the um, the prime minister of Malaysia at the time having a fondness for pigs, which is a pretty silly, stupid thing to do. We really thought. <laughs> We'd get in the papers and and get triple R some publicity right. if we could just spark a, a diplomatic, diplomatic incident. <laughs> yeah. Now it didn't happen because I think we'd 
overestimated the reach oh, and, yeah. and, and the fact that anybody was listening yeah. to us. But, but the, you really the, want to be on Gareth Evans' radar. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, that's verbose FM. Um, uh, but... Uh, no, we we were given it was it was magnificent. There was just so much creativity and support. That's mm. the other thing too, because it was such a great community. And I guess praise from Stephen Walker would have been. Oh valued. my god, I can still remember it. I don't know if you remember it, Jules. Yeah, oh, look, I mean, I was I was devastated when we lost Stephen Walker. I went and listened to so many old Skull Caves. Just that voice, yeah. just him sitting at the desk there. I, I mean, we did. We went in and just did what everyone did in the early 90s. We just asked for a show without any talent, without – we had no following, nothing. And it was Stephen Walker who just sat back and said, well, what about you guys do a radio serial? You know, and and it, it, it was an insane idea when he suggested it to us. But, I mean, the reason that we actually ended up in the commercial media was because um, the, the working dog guys – were doing radio serials, you know, around about the same time, and they asked Tony and I to come and write them, and help them write these radio serials. So if it wasn't for Stephen Walker suggesting that we do something that was kind of so le- out of left field, we we probably wouldn't have the careers that we do now. Well, on the, on the radio show I'm doing at the moment, we play a radio serial that was recorded in the 1970s. So you, you get all this really mannered English being spoken even in the 70s. Mm. And, the you know, the dramatic moment always ends with a, a, a rotary phone being <laughs> ostentatiously hung up. <laughs> and then they get into a badly tuned car and you can hear the gears turning and all that sort of stuff. So they, I mean, as bits of audio, they are very complex and there's lots of moving mm. parts to put together, all of which, and Jules was doing the, the production, and I just sat back and looked pretty. Um, but it was t- you doing it on on, a, on the, the the equipment now is mm. amazing, but back then not so flash. Um, the, someone has, has texted. Someone wants to know if there's any update on Bill the Kiwi who cares. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Bill the New Zealand social worker was the that was the the serial was about Bill the New Zealand social worker. Jules, do you want to tell how we how we came up with the idea of Bill who was a New Zealand social worker? <laughs> Um, uh, you don't remember. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't remember. We were talking. No. Was it the idea of who would be the most annoying person to sit next to on a like a long haul flight? That was, was it. That, <laughs> that was and, it. And it was nothing against New Zealanders, but it was just it was a heavy accent, and it was someone who wanted to talk about your feelings and your emotions yeah. for eighteen hours, and it was the person who said, "How are you?" and you'd nod, and they'd go, "No." How are you really? <laughs> <laughs> that was a yeah. character, but people we love that character, and 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 I still do. It's just it was such a great character. Was Radiothon ever stressful, or was that fun? Or? It, it was fun. It was like a party atmosphere from memory um, until I got dacked by Kate Langbrook, <laughs> and there was no HR back then. <laughs> um, the I mean the most painful part of that was waiting for the deafening round of applause to end. <laughs> <laughs> Which it did eventually. It's excited. Um, it's the radiothon is still young. I can duck Daniel later. Oh, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Am I crazy? Is what does some of your characters have a second life now on social media platforms? Uh, yes, yes, they do. I don't know if you know this, Jules, but Guido Hatzes, Guido. Um, has taken a life of his own on TikTok. I was showed them by my very proud 13-year-old daughter um, that uh, there are people doing kind of impersonations well, yeah. and, and things like that. So um, it lives it, on. And, and I guess TikTok being TikTok, Guido is now owned by the Chinese government. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Boyo Hatsis was just a complete piss take for Chris Hatsis, of course, yeah. who was the you know the anchor of the the breakfasts back in the in the nineties. So yeah, Guido came out of 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 Triple R, and and um, some of the stories that Chris used to tell. Yeah, it was. I was just telling Tony off air that. Uh, I was listening to old audio and Chris had his back and out to cried episode and threw to a track off the new album that had come out that week. Definitely. Maybe I thought, wow. I mean, what a people talk about, you know, halcyon days or whatever, but that it sounded fun. It's true. You would hear bands like that before you heard them anywhere else. There's, there were so many bands like that, that you, you heard first on triple R and then when we went off to commercial radio, people were excited to tell us about this band called Oasis. Mm. And we went, well, we, we, we knew them two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Same with Nirvana, for example, and all these, all these other great bands that were broken first. You know, um, Nirvana and Karen Lang, obviously, would have been all over them. And, yeah, so, again, another great thing about this radio station. Yeah. Mm. Uh, would you ever do a full-blown – would you get the team back together? Well, I don't know if we... It's a bit hard with Jules being in Adelaide and me being in Melbourne, but I'm certainly not a, uh, you know... A, you sprung this on them. Averse to the idea. Yeah, well, t- Tony and I catch up all the time. I, I love to do radio again with Tony. It, it's kind of weird that it's AW and the ABC as yes. well. We're sworn enemies. Yeah, we're sworn enemies. A summer uh, pop-up on, on Triple R, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd love to do that. I'd, yeah, uh, I'd no, love to be I'd, back here I'd with Jules. To, t- Tony and I have a, a friendship that goes back to, to high school um, so, and, and we never really intended it on a career in the radio. We just love Triple R and the family atmosphere. We love working together. So, yeah, I, I'd absolutely love to work with with Tony again. We, we shan't work together again. It's what we always <laughs> said. We'd, we'd, always, we'd always quote Spinal Tap to each other. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you reckon people should subscribe to Triple R? Um, well, I, I think because of the uh, – I think if we are uh, – uh, we're an example of – the talent that can be nurtured make mistakes in an environment that is uh tolerant and supportive and uh you go forth and multiply and spread the word the the alumni of of triple r is so faithful loyal and proud Mm. about i know i am and um i'll always spread the word of this great radio station it's um seriously a really formative part of my life and i love it and i'm proud of it and it, it is it's a great incubator of talent mm. I, i'd have to say that i'm actually more nervous about this radio than the three hours i've got to do later today <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can understand it's, that it, it's kind of like bumping into your first love at an airport and wanting to sort of sound <laughs> that you've achieved something i this I, i've done I, I mean i live in adelaide now and i've lived in obviously i've lived in sydney there is nothing like this in those cities like triple mm. r i mean it, it is it, it's only once you leave melbourne you realise how precious Triple R is, how different it is, and how much it adds to the culture and the, you know, the fabric of the city. So I, I'll, I'll always come and do anything for you guys if you ask. It's just, it's a gem, and you have to support it. Oh, thank you very well much, said. Julian Schiller, Tony Moclair. Thank you so much for coming on Breakfast. As well. Absolute pleasure. Triple R is very proud of you. Thank and you. Appreciate the thank time. You. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website.